I turned 45 recently, and it got me thinking, yeah, <laughs> for some of you that's young, and some of you that's really old. Um, it got me thinking about the course that my life has taken, um, and I was just thinking, like, when I first started off as an enlisted person in the Coast Guard, I would have never, you could have never convinced me that I would be following Jesus like this, let alone a pastor, living in Bellingham, all of these things are so outside of what I would have thought about 20, 25 years ago. It's, it's insane to me. It just got me thinking of how Jesus, when he encounters us, he <laughs> changes the trajectory of our lives. He, he, he's in kind of the business of, of altering people and their plans and all these kind of things. It, you can't encounter Jesus and not be changed in some way. Sometimes it's not as dramatic as a career move or something like that or a whole life calling, but it's dramatic if you start to think about all the ways that Jesus has influenced you. I was looking in the Bible and, and people, you know, fishermen like Peter and James, John, they left their homes, they left their uh, their family businesses to follow Jesus on the road to they did not know where at the time. Tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus turned from their greed-driven sub- subculture to be financially modest but relationally wealthy. Women of sus- suspect backgrounds like Mary Magdalene and the Samaritan woman uh, at the well found in Jesus a man who maybe for the first time in their lives loved them more truly and more respectfully than anyone that they had ever known. And their lives were changed. They were turned upside down. And one of the most unexpected transformations occurred uh, to a young Pharisee named Saul. Last week, we looked at that story in Acts chapter 9, verses one through 19, and we saw how Saul had been this passionate, even zealous persecutor of the followers of Jesus. He tried to arrest them and to bring them back to trial where they would end up just like Stephen who was martyred and stoned to death. Saul knew this. He was complicit in it. He was a killer bent on arresting the followers of Jesus. And when we meet Saul, he's self-righteous and and confident and well-respected, and he's acting in the authority of the high priest like everything is going well for Saul in his own mind. That is until he encounters the resurrected, embodied Jesus on the road to Damascus. There Saul the arrester was arrested. Saul the judge was convicted of his own sin and his own heart. Saul the killer was saved by a man whom his bosses had killed. Left blind and repentant and humbled and shaken, Saul's life would never be the same. He was accepted by a brother Christian named Ananias, and he was called a brother by the disciples of Jesus in Damascus. And at that point, Saul began a new life of a new allegiance in Jesus. The scales fall from his eyes, and for the first time, he can actually see what maybe his life is for. And he was baptized, identifying himself with the death of Jesus by going under the water and new life in the Spirit when he comes out of the water. What I'd like to do this evening is to continue the story, picking up on Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. If you're able, I would invite you to stand as we read this passage. So Paul has just been baptized. He takes food because he's been fasting for three days. He's strengthened. 
Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. All those who were hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Isn't this the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who came here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him down in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked with him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. And when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we pointed out last week, like Captain Obvious here, Saul's story isn't ordinary. It is not ordinary for Jesus to show up in the flesh and blind you on a road when you're walking one day. It's not ordinary for us to be like Saul, trilingual, a Bible scholar, a citizen of the Roman Empire, and yet Jewish like Saul was. I mean, that's, that's, just, that's a very unique person. It isn't ordinary to be a killer-turned-disciple of Jesus Christ, church planter, apostle, and writer of most of the New Testament epistles. Anyone else wrote a New Testament epistle? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird. It's, it's ordinary. It's not like, what do you do with a story like that? But at the same time, there's a familiarity to it. There's a resonance. It is ordinary that if you follow Jesus, your life will never be ordinary. That's the ordinary way it goes. It will never be the same. And I believe that Saul's story in this passage reveals four ways that following Jesus changes everything. Now, if you're one of those, I gotta have notes, I gotta take it down, Um, Tim's gonna put some things up there. So I think these are the four ways that following Jesus changes everything. First is the primacy of Jesus. I think that Saul's life and his, the story tonight shows us that if you were to strip it all down, what is following Jesus about? It's about Jesus. It's about, that's the number one thing in life. Number two, the disorienting loss of following Jesus. The disorienting loss of following Jesus. Like when, when you really start to press in with what following Jesus means, it's going to mean some losses for the way that I used to think, the way that I used to interact with people. If I 
was living a life of not following him, and it's disorienting, and it feels like, uh, like a death, like a thousand little deaths, and that's just, that's the truth. Number three, the reorienting gain of following Jesus. So you lose some things, but I'm going to argue, and I think that Paul's, uh, Saul's life shows that you gain so much more, and I think that that's the ordinary Christian experience. And number four is the, the life of ever-converting as we follow Jesus. Like, like, let's do away with the lie that there is just, like, Christianity is about believing something one time, and then pff, I don't, don't interact with the Lord anymore. Like, when we follow Jesus, he will continually shape us and mold us, and I discover all the times new ways that I can improve in my character and in my faithfulness, right? So we're going to be talking about those four things as are represented in the passage to come. We're going to take these in order, starting with a consideration of Saul's message. So this guy just has a Damascus Road experience, just gets baptized, has his whole life turned upside down, and he's out preaching. And I'm, I'm interested to see what he's preaching about. Luke tells us the story of Saul's transformation in rapid-fire, no-frills narrative. Like, we don't get any of the flowery details of how did Paul feel about this change of heart. Like, we don't know how he felt. Uh, we don't know what the weather was like on that day. Uh, we don't know what the scales look like. You know the scales that followed from, falls from his eyes? Like, I'm just weird like that. I kind of want to know what they look like. Okay, anyway, it doesn't tell us that. What that means is that what we do get in the story from Luke is important, Luke writes what he wants us to know and he thinks is important for us to know and the early church to know, obviously. And what we learn is that after Saul's training as a Bible scholar and a teacher of what we might call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, Saul begins immediately preaching in the Jewish synagogues, places he'd be familiar with, and he's preaching about Jesus. Particularly, we learn in this passage that He's teaching that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is the Christ, which is a Greek word, Greek translation of the word Messiah. So he's teaching that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. So let's just dig into these terms a little bit and see the significance of what Paul is saying. What would members of a Jewish synagogue in Roman-occupied Damascus think of when they heard the term son of God. And they have this man coming in saying, Jesus is the son of God. Well, first, because these are Jewish people and they know their scriptures, they would think of Israel. In the Hebrew scriptures, Yahweh would sometimes refer to his people, the Israelites, as a son or as his son. So in a sense, and we know this from Paul's later teachings when Saul turns into Paul, uh, that Saul is implying that Jesus, in his person, sums up all that Israel was supposed to be, a light to the nations, a light to the world, the representative of God to the world. He embodies God's way, God's law, God's character, all wrapped up, summed up, as Paul will say later on in books like Ephesians, summed up in this man, Jesus. All that Israel was supposed to be as God's son summed up in this man, Jesus. That's one thing that I think they would think of. 
Second, when they heard Son of God, they might think of exceptionally righteous people. Moses was referred to as God's son from time to time. Not not his biological son, of course, but in the sense that he was humble and righteous and obedient. And so Saul is implying that Jesus not only sums up Israel's role or vocation in the world, but that he does so as one who embodies righteousness, the very character of God in a man. Third, where's Damascus? It's in Syria, north of Jerusalem, and at this time in the first century, it was thoroughly Hellenized. Helen is the Greek word for Greek, so it's Greekized. They are steeped in Greek language. It's probably a first language in an urban setting like this. They're, they're steeped in Greek thought, Greek philosophy, all of these kinds of things, and so in this mindset, to call someone the son of X would imply that the son would embody all the qualities and character and mentality and authority and position and reputation of X. So to call Jesus son of God then is to import all of God's qualities and character and mentality and authority and position and reputation to import that, what they know about Yahweh, into Jesus. And fourth, in the context of first century Roman, uh, Roman Empire, the Son of God would be a not-so-veiled reference or challenge to the hubris and arrogance of Tiberius Caesar, son of Augustus, son of a god. To refer to Jesus as son of a god could be treason. To call him the son of God like Paul does, or sorry, Saul in this page, (laughs) is treasonous and blasphemous. So Saul's first preaching emphasis is on Jesus as God's son, this primacy of Jesus, and saying that all the ways that you could think about what a son of God is, it's in Jesus, okay? But that's not all. He also calls Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. I'm gonna be honest with you. It will make your head spin to try and figure out what exactly first century people, Jewish people, thought the Messiah meant. Like, it, like there's just no one cookie cutter thing that people thought of. It's so loaded up with biblical meaning and then burdened with cultural expectations But what I can say, and what I think scholars are in agreement on, is that all mainstream Jews would have agreed that the Messiah would be a descendant from David's lineage, who would be an anointed deliverer from Israel's enemies, and that he would somehow bring glory to God and deliverance from Israel, or for Israel. Everyone at this time is looking for the Messiah. When will he come? When will he rescue us? And what Paul Saul is saying is, look no further. The one you've been waiting for is Jesus the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's what we've been waiting for, but he's also more than we could have imagined. Somehow, in his person, through his actions of incarnation, that's when he becomes flesh, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, Jesus has fulfilled Israel's vocation. He's fulfilled the law and the prophets. He's broken down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, humans and God, life and death. That's what Saul is saying. Now, if Saul wanted to preach about things he was an expert in, 
He could have preached on the law, he was really good at that, on the prophets, on the sacrificial system, on what it means to live a righteous life, because as Jen read earlier from Philippians 3, Saul, Paul, led a flawlessly righteous life under the standard of the law. But what he is compelled to preach is none of that stuff in particular, but the uniqueness of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. You know, later on, and we, we read Paul's writings and the epistles, uh, once his theology is more figured out and he has more words for what he wants to say, he would say that in Jesus, all things are summed up. This is uh, Ephesians 1. All things are summed up in Christ. But for now, his message is simply the primacy of Jesus over all things Once you put your faith in Jesus, once you take him seriously, your life will never be the same. All the things that you you think of as primary, all the things you thought were so important must and inevitably will be influenced by your relationship to Jesus. I think that is the ordinary way of following him. That is one, that's number one, that's the primacy of Jesus is the ordinary way of following him. We see that in Saul's story. The second way that Saul's story reveals that following Jesus changes everything is in the disorienting way it costs us. Our culture has kind of perpetuated this false narrative that religion is private, as if conversion to Jesus could be kept undercover, like secret in your home, and have no influence in the world, in your workplace, in in your neighborhood, in in politics, in anything. But true faith in Jesus is dangerous to your old life. Paying attention to the text, let's consider what following Jesus cost Paul, or Saul. I'm going to just keep doing that. I'm going to stop correcting myself. Last week, I pointed out that Saul was likely from a well-connected family, born in Tarsus as a Roman citizen, and then he moved to Jerusalem and trained under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. Saul was, by his own accord, blameless in following the law. He was on the fast track to a powerful uh, religious and social standing among the people. Like, this guy was a made man uh, in, in the religious establishment of Jerusalem. He was connected He had positional authority. He had a place in his tribe. He was known. He was trusted. He was accepted. And by the way, when we really take a look at what wealth is, we know now that wealth isn't just dollars and cents. It's not just having money or having property. Wealth is relational. And so you could say that Saul, before he met Jesus, was wealthy, because he, had, he was known, he had a place in his culture, he had position, he had authority, well-respected. He was wealthy in relationship. But when he began to follow Jesus, people didn't know what to do with him. What box do I put this man in? Christians were afraid of him, both in Damascus and Jerusalem. Isn't this the guy that, like, hunts our people? Wasn't he there with Stephen? Didn't he get orders to go hunt more of us down in Damascus? I don't trust him. What if he's a spy? So going forward is difficult for him. The followers of the way were supposed to be his new family, but it's not as easy as one might think. And then on the other hand, looking backwards, his old colleagues and friends saw him as a traitor. Like he was one of us, and now he's with them, with the way. And they actually tried to kill him in Damascus and later on in Jerusalem. 
and later on other times if you keep reading in the book of Acts. Following Jesus is likely to give you an existential crisis. It's disorienting to have to figure out who you are and how you relate to the same people when you yourself have been changed. All the old allegiances to power and authority and meaning and purpose come into question. And Jesus has this way of taking you from the path of life in the direction that you were headed in and sending you down a completely different direction. And I think this is part of what Jesus is talking about in the Gospel of Luke uh, in verse 23 when he says, um, uh, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will save it. Following Jesus will require loss of allegiance to all the things that seek to take the place of primacy of Jesus and his kingdom. But the faith that leads to disorienting loss also leads to greater gain. And so the third way that Saul's story reveals that following Jesus changes everything is in how it reorients us, uh, reorients us, uh, reorients us to a fuller life than we had before. So let's consider what Saul gained just from the passage. We learned that he Uh, For all that had been taken away, Jesus graciously provided Saul with allies. First, we meet Ananias. We don't know hardly anything about this guy, except that he was prayerful and obedient, and he's the first representative of Jesus to receive Saul into the family of God. At great risk to himself, both risk for his life, like he was concerned that maybe Saul wasn't really converted, and risk to his reputation. I'm hanging out now with the man who has been complicit in the murder of my brothers and sisters. Ananias takes that risk and advocates for Saul, baptizes Saul, invites him into community. And then when Saul goes to Jerusalem and the followers of Jesus are skeptical, another ally, Barnabas, takes young Saul under his wing. Now, we've met Barnabas before in Acts chapter 4, and there we learn he was a man of great generosity, where he sold some property, and he brought the money from that property to the apostles' feet so that they could do ministry with it. Our generosity with our material goods reveals our generosity with relationships. I think the two clearly go together. And this man, Barnabas, wasn't just wealthy in financial terms, he was also wealthy in social terms as well. He had clout. He was well-respected. To the followers of Jesus, Saul was a nobody at best and at worst an enemy of their group. But for all they, all they knew, he was a spy, just pretending to be a disciple so he could arrest them. But Barnabas took a risk and vouched for Saul. And he got Saul an audience with the apostles and on his own social credit, he told the story of Saul as something trustworthy and something truthful. You know, it's easy for us to look back and to say, that wasn't so hard. I mean, Saul does become the Apostle Paul, who wrote like a lot of the New Testament, so not a big deal. But in that time, Saul was this young, zealous firecracker of a person who was prone to get into arguments before he met Jesus, prone to get into arguments after he met Jesus. He was rough around the edges, you might say, and he had just been the persecutor of the church, and a lot of people would never give him a chance 
to teach, let alone to come into the community and just be part of the group. It kind of reminds me of uh, you know, a little pop culture reference, but like Kanye West, you know, recently in the last 12 months has, has come out as a born-again Christian. And, you know, all I knew of Kanye were rap lyrics that were overly sexual and, and arrogant and materialist, and I knew he was married to Kim Kardashian and struggles with bipolar and sometimes wears a Trump hat and all kinds of crazy stuff. All I knew was like, I don't really like it. I, it's kind of weird to me. And, and then he comes out, as a, as a changed person, or at least he says he's a changed person. And Corey got his album, and I, she said, you gotta listen to this album. I said, all right, I'll listen to Kanye. I was so skeptical. I'm confessing to you. I'm so skeptical of that. I listened to his album. I'm almost in tears. Like, it is moving. It is a fantastic worship album. I don't know how Kanye is going to end up, but give him a chance, right? Uh, I think his album is also prophetic in a sense. He sings about how the church doesn't trust him. He talks about how he would go to churches and pastors would write him off or they would write negative things about him in the media without actually knowing him at all. How the church was afraid to embrace him at all. I see how Jesus provides allies for Saul. How might you and I become allies for other people that might appear to be on the fringes that we might even internally be a little skeptical about. There are no perfect Christians. I'm not looking at any, and I never see one in the mirror. But if we don't make room for the table, how will people ever grow and have a chance to be part of the community? If we don't make room at the table and advocate for others who are truly seeking, then we're not acting like members of the way. We're simply in the way. In all his disorientation, it was grace from Jesus to reorient Saul by giving him allies who would break the ice with the community of Jesus. And we all need allies, no matter how long we've been at it, no matter how long we've been part of the community. So Jesus provides Saul with a new community. Wherever Saul went, first to Damascus, and then to Jerusalem, he sought the followers of the way. He sought the church. He may have been viewed as a lone wolf by skeptics, but he was on the hunt for community, for family, for storytellers of the way. What a gift we've been given to be part of the family of God and being part of the church. For countless people throughout history and even today, the church has become a deeper family than a blood bond family. And many times in cultures, even to this day, following Jesus meant being disowned by biological or adopted relatives and being adopted into the family of the church through our new siblings and our new spiritual mothers and fathers in the faith. How has the church been a gift to you? Just like any family, relationships are hard work. Church relationships are hard work, but ultimately, when we give ourselves to Jesus and to loving his family, we're both blessed, and we have an opportunity to extend the favor to others. So Jesus provides Saul with allies, and he provides them with family, with community, and he also provides Saul with new purpose. 
I love the mentality in our culture of, the, of kind of like repurposing things. Like not only is that a concept, but we have stores like The Restore and we have like Makeshift and all of these awesome things. Sometimes I'll just wander through The Restore and I'll just like, can I help you? They'll ask. And I'm just like, oh, I'm just imagining how this door and this window and that hinge would go together cool or, you know. And if you walk through our neighborhood or any of the neighborhoods in, in the downtown corridor, you'll see planter boxes made with old wood from bleachers or, you know, little free libraries made with reclaimed things. I just love how we're into reclaiming things. And Jesus is the same way with people. You know, Saul may have felt like the life he had lived and the life he had trained for didn't have a place in this new life with Jesus. But what the story of Saul tells us is that when we follow Jesus, we don't, like, lose ourselves. We don't lose our identity. This isn't some like far eastern religion where we're a drop in the ocean and then we're all just one thing this is a movement where jesus takes all that you are and employs it for good he's so creative at that before surrendering to jesus saul was well educated passionate zealous motivated and brash after surrendering to jesus he was still well educated passionate zealous motivated and brash He was just using those qualities now to not kill people, but to tell them about the good news of Jesus. So Saul gains allies, he gains community, he gains a repurposed purpose in life. But I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that he also gained salvation. Saul will come to know more and more fully that he is saved by the grace of Jesus. He'll find new freedom in the fact that he is loved by God and eternally secure, not because of his outward appearance to the law, adherence to the law, but because of his faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. His life before, I gotta think it was exhausting because the more righteous people thought Saul was, the more pressure he must have felt to not let them down. The higher up the religious pecking order he went, the more eyes were on his performance. But what freedom there is in Jesus. Where grace abounds, so does freedom to live for Jesus and Jesus alone as our audience, right? Finally, a way that Saul's story reveals that following Jesus changes everything, is modeling a stance of ever converting in his life. Sometimes we read the story of Saul's encounter in the Damascus Road experience, and we assume that one day he was against Jesus, and the next he was spectacularly converted and saved in that moment. And he's transformed into this mighty apostle that we then call Paul and we read his letters as scripture. But if you missed last week's sermon, I I break down the process leading up to Saul's conversion and I argue in that sermon that it was a much longer process and there's evidence for that. Um, But I'll refer you there another time. But what I want to talk about now is moving forward, the process after Saul's conversion Saul Saul still has so much more converting to do. The letters to the Galatians and the Corinthians help fill out the timeline a little bit, but it seems that right after his conversion on that road to Damascus, Saul spends a little time in Damascus, and then he goes away to Arabia for one to up to three years before then coming back and preaching in Damascus and almost getting killed and then getting lowered by a basket. 
Then when he comes to Jerusalem, he only spends 15 days with the apostles. He is so brash and confrontational in his preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem that the apostles send him back to his hometown of Tarsus. Like they take him to Caesarea, which is on the coast, and probably put him on a boat back up to Tarsus. And I love it. As soon as Saul leaves, then it says in verse 31 that the church enjoyed shalom. You know, it is like... (laughs) or Irene in Greek, but whatever. Uh, This implies that while he was away, Saul was probably working on his craft. Something out of, uh, he was smoothing out the sharp edges of his character. And it's 10 to 15 years later that we see the same educated and passionate man, but he's become full of grace. And he's much more a pastor instead of a zealot. By the way, Jen read from Philippians 3, and Saul's talking about, or Paul by this time, is talking about all of the stuff he's done, and he's saying, still, I've not arrived, I've not made it, but I press on toward the goal. This is a life of ever converting. And that's my point, that the life of following Jesus is just that. It is a life. It is not a moment. It is not a decision one time. It's a journey of being ever converted. And there are three things that I want us to consider as we close. One, it's my hunch that most of us are too hard on ourselves. Most of us obsess over our character faults and are way too unreflective to give glory to Jesus for the ways he has shaped us and sustained us. I bet you if you just took one homework assignment and you said, okay, I'm gonna sit for an hour and I'm just gonna journal about my last 10 years if you've been following Jesus for that long. If it's been one year, do it for one year. But if you start to notice the ways that you've matured, it doesn't have to be super spiritual things, just the ways that you've matured. If we believe in a God who is sovereign over all creation and vocation is holy and your life in your home is holy, then every positive change in your life can be attributed to his work. It doesn't have to be just the stuff like, oh, I know more about the Bible now. Like you could just be like a nicer person, <laughs> a better employee, a better citizen. Those are ways of God maturing you. Okay, I'm going on. We're too hard on ourselves. You and I are complicated webs of biology and nurture and personality and experience. And unfortunately, many of us, we are the recipients of trauma and regret. And I think that we could be just, uh, to, to think, to think that we could be just like Jesus in a moment, like that by praying a prayer or going to church enough times, is to waffle between arrogance and delusion, and neither one of those are great poles to land on. I don't know where we ever got this idea in our Western culture that conversion is an instant, but let's look at Saul and give ourselves some grace for the process of becoming. What if we saw our journey not as one of trying and failing, but one of training and growing? Not trying and failing, but training and growing. That's all Dallas Willard, by the way. Second, apply all I just said to the sibling in Christ sitting beside you, in front of you, behind you, that you know from some other church, from some other time. Apply all that I just said about you to other followers of Jesus. Your fellow siblings in Christ, we are far too hard on other believers. 
Yes, we, we should hold each other to account. We should correct where there is sin, and we should especially hold those to account who put themselves forth in the public eye, who represent the church to people on TV or in written statements or in universities or in pulpits. But we should never seek to pass final judgment on people. Let's be gracious with each other, knowing how far we have And finally, big knock on the church in general. I know a lot of you are so gracious, but we are strangely far too hard on people who don't believe in Jesus at all. For some reason, church people seem to try and apply our standards of Christ-likeness on people who have never claimed to follow him. That's insane. That's nuts. We either think way too little of what following Jesus looks like and that we don't actually need the Holy Spirit and community to do it, or or we're just mean or or not thinking. You are not being unfaithful to Jesus for not condemning your non-Christian neighbor. Let me say that again because I feel like it will give some of you permission. You are not being unfaithful to Jesus by not condemning your non-Christian friend or neighbor. You're not doing anything wrong by not condemning them. That's not your job. It's not my job. And I, I hope this frees you up then to love your neighbor, that they might come to know the primacy of Jesus and the disorienting nature of following Jesus and the reorienting gain of following Jesus and count themselves as part of the community of the ever-converting. May it be. Lord, we thank you for your servant Paul. We thank you for taking the initiative with him and for transforming him. We also thank you for, uh, for the way he sought after you faithfully. We thank you for your servant Luke who writes all of this down, who tells us the story. For the exceptions, for the glorifying way that you uh, appear to him on the road, but also for the ordinary lessons we see in this. That your call for every single person is life-changing. That you are to have the place of primacy in our lives as number one. Lord, help us to be more courageous in expecting that our lives will be uprooted and disoriented when we follow you, when we take steps after you. But help us also, Lord, to revel in uh, the goodness of your reorientating love, of, of the assurance of salvation, of the community of faith, of allies both that you've put in our lives to advocate for us and for opportunities for us to be allies to other people. Bless you for these great gifts, Lord. Lord, help us to have a view, a long view of life, to to give ourselves and each other space and process to grow with you, to mature with you. Help us to encourage each other to keep putting one foot in front of the other without condemning ourselves or others for slipping back sometimes. 
you are good and gracious to us, Lord.